0: Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica.
1: And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us.
0: Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Hello. Hello. It's finally here.
1: It is a blessed day today, isn't it? It is.
0: Oh, happy day. The new Revolver release is out.
1: I know. It feels like yesterday we were just talking about the new Let It Be release, and now here we are Revolver. We've regressed a few years.
0: Regressed, but at the same time advanced so much technologically, sonically. This is true. We would not
1: have Revolver if it hadn't been for all the advancements of last year and all the technology that came out of that thanks to Peter Jackson. So, yay. I'm so excited to dig into this. It's been such a joy to explore the super deluxe box set.
0: It's unreal. So we got the super deluxe set. Now there are a bunch of fun little treats in there. We got the mono and the stereo mixes, which is great. We got the discs of the outtakes um, and the sessions. And we've got the cutest little EP for Paperback Rider (laughs) and Rain. That is just exactly how it was looking when it was released in 1966, which I'm loving so much.
1: Yes, I love these packages so much. I mean, I'm holding the CD uh, Super Deluxe on my hand. And one thing that is really cool about the outside packaging is that the revolver title is embossed on the front and clear. I don't know if it's like a 3D printer thingy, but that's very technological, guys, really. Um, but it's embossed in the front. and You wouldn't even notice it until the light hits the cover. And then there it is with the Parlophone logo, which I think is so cool. And then the same thing goes for the book, you know, that mm-hmm. has the, uh, the embossing of the hair in white on white. So it's sort of like a little Easter egg until light hits it. You wouldn't even know it was there. So the CD also comes with uh, a little folio and it has, you know, the little discs inside of it. Uh, you've got three on one side and two on the other. And you will obviously get break down what's on the discs, but it's such a cute little package. I love it so
0: much. Yeah, I mean, all this stuff comes out on Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon, all those things today, too. But there's a lot of value to be gotten in these box sets. I think they do a really good job with them. Making it a keepsake, making it something that you won't just buy and put on your shelf and never look at again. The book that comes with the box set is incredible.
1: Yes, we will dig into that for sure. Like Erica just said, we have the mono and stereo mixes. Obviously, the stereo mixes are newly remixed by Giles Martin. um, And the mono is the original mono, which is kind of the way the Beatles intended Revolver to be heard because mono was the most popular format uh, in 1966. Stereo was beginning to emerge, but a lot of people just had a record player with one speaker. And so the book points out there's a lot of differences between the monaural and the binaural. So try to say that five times fast. Um, mixes beyond just the fact that it's made for one speaker versus two speakers. So, got to get you into my life in the mono, lasts longer, has an extra set of trumpets and saxes in the mono. Um, I'm only sleeping, has extra guitars. So, it's really worth taking a listen to both of those discs. It's very cool that we have those.
0: That's funny that there are extra guitars. George had been skeptical about the idea of stereo. I think he said something like, Why would you want to buy two speakers? Oh, yeah,
1: (laughs) he did. I mean, ever the economist, George. (laughs) That makes total sense. And I think it might have actually been George, too, who I think in the books calls it um, a stereo mix. It's kind of like being a little bit naked because you've got all the parts exposed and you Mm. can hear them so much better um, in the the right and the left channels as opposed to just right in front of you with the mono
0: I wonder how he'd feel about this. I think that's exactly what this new mix does very well. Oh, yeah. Isolating and uh, highlighting different parts throughout. So he would feel extremely naked if he had been able to hear (laughs) this mix.
1: He would, but I think he'd be really pleased because I think, as we'll talk about, like the depth of the recordings are so pristine in these remixes. And this is something we've talked about, too, with Giles's remixes in the past sets. But I feel like the instruments and the arrangements are so well highlighted that George's guitar really shines on a lot of these. His Obviously, we'll talk about his sitar on Love You Too. It's phenomenal what new technology can do.
0: What an amazing George album this really is, all the way through.
1: absolutely. You know, we talked a little bit about the genesis of Revolver in our preview special, which we'll link in the show notes if you missed it. And we'll talk a little bit about it in a few minutes. But one of the things about Revolver was Paul and John were sort of like, okay, we do need to churn out like a 14-track album. But maybe this time we'll actually lean on George a little bit more because the record company just wanted all originals. And they were like, um, you know, we uh, we do write for a living, but, you know, maybe we don't want to do 14 tracks. So, George, what do you have? And that's why we have such brilliant George tracks.
0: And George is like sitting over here. He's like, I've got 40 songs,
1: bitches. <laughs> He's like, oh, we should hear all things must pass, okay?
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Building my triple album <laughs> as we speak.
1: I love it. Yeah, so good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the George songs on this are phenomenal. Um, they really are some of my favorites, actually.
0: The book itself has a couple of forwards and intros by Paul and Giles and Questlove.
1: It's always nice to start off one of these with a, uh, a word from Paul. I did like Giles's. He had a great quote in his foreword. This is music, after all, and to be honest, I never want anyone to hear the mixes. I just want everyone to enjoy the songs. Songs that remain as fresh and vibrant as the day they were recorded. Music doesn't get old. We just get old around it, which is sad, but true.
0: (laughs) I can totally hear Giles saying that. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> As we've talked about in our previous episodes, we were so lucky and we got to go to um, Revolver listening sessions in New York and LA uh, with Giles for a full playback of the album, plus some of the outtakes. So we'll be referencing that, I'm sure, throughout this episode.
0: Yeah, that was an incredible way to, to hear it for the first time.
1: Unreal, totally unreal. I was so excited to read Questlove's essay. I'd heard about it and I sort of knew the gist of it, which is he sort of became a later in life Beatles man. He speaks to something that's super relatable, I think, for a lot of people who are latter generation fans, which is, I knew the Beatles, of course, but that was sort of not part of my zeitgeist because I was into other things, or I was into my parents' music, or it was on Cool, or whatever it was. So he talks about how he first resisted it growing up. And I loved him talking in the essay about how the Capitol logo was the thing that turned him off. <laughs> and he said it reeked of old people.
0: It's ridiculous. <laughs> I love it.
1: It's so funny. I know. But my favorite thing is he, he mentions, I want to hold your hand, the Robert Zemeckis movie, which is amazing.
0: That is a great
1: movie. We need to talk about it more on the podcast. It's so, so good. But he speaks specifically about Revolver. And he says, I feel like anyone who name checks this record gets it. It's my litmus test for who absorbs music versus simply listening to it, which I think is really a good way to sum up this album. It is sort of like that middle ground of the Beatles recording career, but it's such an important record. And it's my favorite record.
0: I don't think it was my favorite record before now, but it might be now.
1: Ooh, interesting.
0: I really like... The way you can feel the transition from early Beatles to later stage Beatles, and you can feel the presence of the moment for them. Mm. I'm going to think of 1966. I'm going to think of some of the things that are on this album, and they're talking about things that are happening to them in real time like whoever Dr. Robert might actually be about, it's about someone. It's about someone who did something to them.
2: (laughs) And it's it's
0: a real story. And like, gotta get you into my life. Okay. It's about, it's about drugs, but it's very present to, to Paul. It's not a love song that's directed at some nameless, faceless girl. And you actually have a lot
1: of Paul on this record, not directing those love songs to a girl. Like you know, we have obviously the single Paperback Writer, which not a love song, you know, it's a whole other subject matter for him entirely.
0: This whole album is really about exploring other topics, you know, from Taxman to Love You Too to Eleanor Rigby. Other than Here, There and Everywhere, is there another straight up love song on this at all?
1: I mean, of course, you can interpret Good Day Sunshine as like a nice sunny day with your lady. But, you know, there's no straight up like, and I love hers on this. Which is actually kind of a nice change of pace.
0: Paul pulled out all the Paul stops just once and (laughs) (laughs) and he
1: experimented with other things. Exactly. Well, you know, in 66, when this was recorded, of course, uh, just briefly for you guys to give you a little bit of context before we dig into the track by track. The Beatles, when they came off their tour in late 65, were supposed to just film another movie. Movie got canceled, thankfully, for them, because it sort of gave them a nice big break. The biggest break they'd gotten since they started really rolling on the Beatlemania train. And so that allowed them time to, like, explore their interests. George got further into the Indian music and the sitar and went to see Ravi Shankar and all of these things. And John picked up the Tibetan Book of the Dead and was, like, totally immersed in that world. Paul was still composing, and Ringo was actually enjoying time being with his family. So they sort of had a break, a mental break, a physical break. That allowed them to create this album. And literally, the recording for Revolver stopped hours before they got on the plane to um, embark on their '66 world tour. Thankfully, they had a little bit of a breather, else we probably wouldn't have Revolver.
0: Yeah, not only a breather for them to record, but like you said, to explore some of their new interests. Like this is when Paul was really getting into avant-garde and the art scene. And probably things like tape loops may not have been on his mind nearly as much or backwards recordings, things like that, if he hadn't had time to explore.
1: Absolutely. And that's something that uh, another one of the essays, and this is when we get into Kevin Howlett's portion of the program, and his notes are always fantastic. I'm so happy he's back doing notes for this, edition again i really enjoy in his notes how he takes a lot of information from contemporaneous interviews because i always feel like you know i i of course want to hear paul and ringo's recollections now but by pulling so much from 66 and around the time of revolver's creation and release it gives so much more of a real picture of what was actually going on in the beatles world
0: oh i totally agree I still think the best Beatles book out there is Love Me Do, The Beatles Progress from 1964.
1: Oh, yeah. which we talked about very early on the podcast. Um, you can find that, that episode. But yeah, so Kevin talks about how Revolver got its genesis, and he writes a beautiful essay, The Road to Revolver, right before he gets into the track-by-track. Track. So for those of us who are more technologically minded, I am not... Full disclosure, I don't understand a lot about the technical aspects of recording. But if you do, you'll find a lot of joy in the track by track intro because they go very deep into it. Something I think I knew, but it refreshed in my brain was that one of the things the Beatles really wanted to try to do with this record was to go to Memphis and record at Stacks. Which would have been amazing. I've been to the Stax Museum a couple of times. And I think there is a, a little panel in the museum that talks about how I don't know if this actually happened. I don't know if there's proof of it, but apparently Brian went to Stax to kind of scope it out and meet with Jim Stewart, who was one of the co-founders of Stax, and talk about how the Beatles could come there record. And they kind of tried to go there to record when they played Memphis, but it just didn't work out financially. I think. Nobody could agree on a money amount, and it was just too much like craziness. But Paul, and even in the book, uh, the Revolver book, talks a lot about how they love Steve Cropper, one of the house band members of stacks, and how they wanted him to produce them, which would have been unreal. They were kind of inspired because the Stones had recorded Aftermath at RCA in Hollywood, and the Stones recorded there quite a lot. I think they recorded Satisfaction there and and a lot of other big tracks, but that gave Paul especially the idea like, oh, maybe we should go somewhere else to record. I don't know if EMI really has the technological capabilities for us to kind of expand out of our wheelhouse. Instead of going elsewhere, because they really didn't have an option, they utilized new technology. They brought in some new techniques to their home base. So They used ADT, which is artificial double tracking, so they didn't have to actually sing it twice. They could sort of uh, manipulate it to have that effect anyway. They used regular double tracking. One of the most famous things they used on uh, Revolver is on the last track, Tomorrow Never Knows, where they fed John's vocal through a rotating Leslie speaker. They'd used that before for guitar effects, but never vocals before. And then uh, a Fairchild 660 limiter, which is like a compressor, I believe. Again, not technological. Um, I did Google it <laughs> so I could see it. Uh, but it uh, enhanced the instruments and the vocal sound. And then um, Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer on this album, who was really instrumental. haha, pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, in sort of getting these new effects up and running and inventing them in some cases. He was quoted as saying, to try and record John's voice without the Fairchild, you're battling to record what you knew you could get out of that vocal. That's
0: interesting. Which is
1: fascinating, right? Because I am like, I think of John, the pinnacle of John vocals is like twist and shout, right? Where he's just screaming. So I'm like, okay, well, what, what was actually wrong with John's vocals, you know?
0: I wonder if that was influenced by John's opinion of his own vocals, because, you know, he didn't like his own voice and he wanted to do right. anything he could to run his voice through other things. Maybe, maybe he did a better job when he was recording and he knew that some kind of enhancement was going to happen.
1: That totally could be it, too.
0: So another thing in the book that I loved was an article called The Cover, which was written by Klaus Foreman. And at this point in Klaus's career, he was working as a graphic designer and art director in London, and the Beatles had asked him to design the revolver cover. This is partially a text essay, but the highlight of it is that he included a graphic novel about the making of the revolver cover, which Klaus wrote and Drew from his uh, 2016 book called Birth of an Icon Revolver, and that's currently out of print, so it's a new way to see this really fun story of how the cover was made. And you're seeing Klaus's interpretations of all the Beatles, Klaus himself, Mal's in it, Brian's in it, George Martin's in it, all in like graphic novel comic format, which is amazing. And it tells the story of the band inviting Klaus to the studio to hear Revolver for the first time, then asking him to do the cover, but really having no ideas for what it was that they wanted. They didn't even have a name yet. They didn't know what to do. Then there's a scene in the graphic novel where you see like Klaus at home racking his brain trying to figure out what, what to do, and he hits upon the idea of using the Beatles' hair as inspiration for what he was going to draw, which I loved because the Beetle haircut came about from the Beatles' initial interactions with Astrid and Klaus in Hamburg because they had this similar haircut. It's full circle. Yeah, I know, it's crazy. He also tells a story, which I remember from when this book came out, that he was having a lot of trouble capturing George. So rather than drawing George's eyes and mouth, he actually cut them out of a picture of George and kind of, and put them in because it's kind of like a a paste collage cover. So he could do that and still be true to the art. That's George's real eyes and real mouth.
1: Okay. Can I just say (laughs) on the note of George's eyes? So Uh when uh, I was at the I met with Giles here in LA. They had the cover revolver blown up super big at the front of the room and we were in the front row and... During the playback of the album, I was just staring at George the whole time and getting a little freaked out. <laughs> I <Like>, just like, <laughs> I, you know, we've all looked at the cover of Revolver a million bajillion times, but I'm like, just something about staring at a huge version of it, just right at George. I was like, oh my God, Klaus, what are you melting my mind with this? <laughs> What's going on? It's an incredible cover. Obviously, Klaus is an icon in both art and music, but it's like, holy shit, George's eyes are going to like bore a hole into my soul.
0: It's totally one of those things where if you if you put it up and you walk around, it looks like George is the one who's following you with his eyes.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, well, He's <laughs> the only one staring right at you. You know, the others yeah. aren't making eye contact. So that makes sense. But yeah, I just just had to mention that because it was such an experience for me. <laughs> and I still think about it. <laughs> And especially now having the super deluxe and holding it right now and looking at George. It's like, oh, my God.
0: It's a crazy effect. And he did it so well that you can't really tell that those are real until you know that they're real. And then you look at them compared to the others that are clearly drawings. And it's it's so freaky. Yeah, Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And of course, the cover itself, like I said, it's collage. Everyone's seen the cover. It's the Beatles intertwined in each other's hair with cutouts nested inside and out of the hair. There's one beetle inside Paul's ear. I think that's actually Klaus, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is Klaus. It is Klaus. He's sticking out of Paul's ear. Yeah. Well, I think that's Klaus, and then there's
1: a photo of Klaus down um, under John, under John's lips, where it says Klaus Foreman. So I think Klaus is on there twice.
0: Yeah, yeah, he is. Klaus also showed what I believe are some of the earlier drawings that were on the revolver cover and earlier concepts of it and there were some really funny ones like um john on the toilet and <laughs> brian wearing what he called a piss pot which i guess is like a chamber pot something like
1: that yeah there, it was taken from a photo i mean obviously it's photo collage but it's uh there's a famous photo i think of the beatles i forget where they are they're all around a dinner table and brian's got it on his head and they're all laughing at him
0: oh that's real i had never seen the real photo
1: Oh, I'll I'll show it to you. Yeah, it's a real photo.
0: Oh, how fun. (laughs) But yeah, anyway, so that's a really great part of the book. I love how
1: he changes his font, his handwriting font based on the person. So George Martin's script when he speaks is like really cursive-y and formal. I think George and Brian both have that sort of like fancy script. And then the Beatles just have like block lettering. So funny because you can sort of hear it, you know, change when you read it. Something else I also really liked in these boxes, and if you have the LP set or the CD set, um, there'll be the session sleeves. And those have the original sort of concept art for Revolver uh, from Robert Freeman, who was involved obviously in Rubber Soul and Beatles for Sale in the earlier Beatles covers. And so that was sort of came about, but ultimately the Beatles chose Klaus's cover. But I really enjoy them. They're kind of like spiralized photographs of the Beatles that would look really nice framed. I'm like, should Hmm. I frame these LP sleeves and put them on my wall? I don't know. But it's really nice to have those included too.
0: This whole package is such a wealth of Easter eggs and, and just wonderful things to learn more about this album. The last piece from the book that I'll mention is there's an article, the final article in the book is called Revolver Reception. And it talks about exactly that. When Revolver was released, it situates it in the time and the events that happened. Included some contemporary reviews, which were not all that kind in some, in many cases. And it mentions what a world of turmoil the Beatles really were in around the time that this, this album was released in that it coincided with the bigger than Jesus controversy in the United States. And it was released right after their tour in the Philippines, which was horrible and harrowing, um, and then when they finished that and they came to the United States, they were greeted by people in the South burning their records. And the article made the point that even though they actually produced fewer songs in 1966 than in any other year prior, it was just such a pivotal era for the band, ending touring, experimenting with new techniques that couldn't be re- reproduced live. I mean, that leads right into Sgt. Pepper and all of the, the new innovations that came with that.
1: Right. And their decision to stop touring altogether.
0: Yeah. I don't think I would either after what happened.
1: Yes. And again, we will dig into the Philippines tour the next episode. So you will not want to miss it because it is crazy town. So let's get into these track by tracks. So we're going to talk about the stereo remixes and we're going to talk about the outtakes as well. Track by track, as we said. So start off with Taxman, which was the first single from the Super Deluxe.
2: One, two, three. Four, one two. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, nineteen for me. i I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man.
0: So that's a banging way to start the album. Yeah, that's a good way. Good thing. It's a great introduction to the immersive quality that Giles Martin is going to give us throughout, especially in how they split things. In this mix, the bass and the drums and I believe a cowbell are in the right ear, the guitar is on the left, and then the vocal is, is spread. So it kind of sounds like you're standing in front of the band where George is kind of behind you and you've got some instruments on some sides, some in the other, and it just kind of feels like you're in the center of mm-hmm. the recording of the song, which I love.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Giles, when we saw him live, talked about the revolutionary technology that allowed him to separate all of those instruments. So even down to just like the snare drum hit, Taxman was a perfect example of a way that that technology really worked in their favor. Because, again, you know, for a revolver, Those different stems or different instruments on separate tracks didn't really exist. So with Taxman, they were able to break it down to literally every single drum hit on a separate channel to create this incredible mix.
0: Giles did a great thing at, I think, both of our listening parties where he had set up his speech to time with a version of Taxman where instruments were slowly being pulled out one by one until you just got down to, I think, the drums. It's such a great way to conceptualize how they kind of broke everything down to its tiniest pieces and then rebuilt.
1: Yeah. Something that I <laughs> I didn't realize, this is kind of funny, um, until I was reading the book and reading about Taxman, is I never got the correlation between the Taxman exclamation, you know, in the song where they're like, Taxman! Um, it's a bit of a nod to Batman! <laughs> I will
0: never, ever hear it the same again.
1: (laughs) Never. I was just like dying. I was like, Kevin Howlett, you are surprising me. I, yeah, I, and it's a little bit of a, a sidebar, too. I realized something else about Taxman not long ago, which is, the monkeys headquarters album, which came out in 67. So a year later, well, about a little less than a year later. Um, the lead off track from that you told me starts with an homage to tax man where they're sort of counting off, but I never got the correlation between that lead off and this album lead off until recently. And it's just blowing my mind, like just the tax man tie ins everywhere.
0: Oh, insane. that's crazy.
1: Yeah. I know, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, I thought that was, that was really interesting. Yes, it'll change the way I listen to Taxman forever.
0: Seriously, I, now I want to see like a big POW sign.
1: Oh my gosh, really? Like, it, <laughs> totally, it was made for that.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. All right, where's the fan video? We need the fan video.
1: Yes, exactly. Get creative people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and one, one other thing I want to bring up, these really bring out Ringo's Mastery of his instrument the way he helps transition from one section to the next and it's seamless but now you're hearing the drums in a totally new and more prominent way and you can hear ha- the way that he's doing it it's mind-blowing
1: yeah i mean you've got ringo arguably at the peak of his creative drumming i think on this album like of course mm-hmm. there's more in *Sgt. pepper and to get on to the later albums but we're going to talk about later Rain, hello, that is like Ringo's jewel in his crown. And it's in this period.
0: Both George and Ringo are kind of coming into their own in the Revolver period.
1: Yeah. And maybe that was because they had a little bit more breathing room.
0: It's possible. And it's also like Revolver in 1966 is an interesting, it gets a transition time in, in songwriting and music techniques, but it's also kind of the band is really gelling. I think that George and Ringo's contributions are even more valued as they're getting more experimental and maybe there's a little bit less emphasis on only Lennon-McCartney originals. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And they're all working together. Whereas, you know, once we get past 1966, we are starting to get a lot more independent compositions. Yes. So It's like the only time we really see this level of gelling from all four of them together. Yeah. And
1: another side note um, in the book, you know, I don't know why this struck me so much, but there's a quote from Paul. I think it's because he's talking about how the film was canceled so they could actually make this record. And he mentions, or Kevin Hallett mentions that magical mystery tour a year later. And I was like, for some reason that blew my mind. I'm like, Oh my God, that was only a year later after this, how the time again, time does not exist in Beatles world. But if you think about revolver, as it is and you're like oh yeah next year they'll make magical mystery tour it's like what the hell (laughs) it's so weird beetle
0: time is not our time
1: (laughs) beetle time is a flat circle or whatever it's weird so eleanor rigby track two on revolver look at
2: all the lonely people eleanor rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for all the lonely people? What do they all...
1: This little ditty began life uh, with another nonsense Paul title. I think maybe yesterday and scrambled eggs. He called it Ola Natanji. Ola Natanji. <laughs> 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 of course... In Beatles lore, there is a grave in Walton Cemetery, uh, the parish cemetery there, with Eleanor Rigby on the gravestone. Paul has said the inspiration for the name came from Eleanor Braun, who was the Beatles' co-star in um, Help, and also a friend to them. A combination for first name and a wine merchant that was a few doors down from the old Vic where Jane Asher was performing in a play, and the wine merchant was called Rigby and Evans Limited. You could decide for yourself whether... It's subconsciously about that gravestone or it is a pastiche of those two things.
0: You know how it is with Paul. He, he develops his ideas through osmosis with the world in a way. When he's asked to pin down where did he come from, I think he picks out, oh, you know, maybe it came from this or maybe it came from that. I don't even think he knows a lot of times where these things come from. Right. Like we were talking about in the last episode, how A Day in the Life was picked up from Melanie Coe, who was in the newspaper for having run away, which he had met her three years prior. That still blows my mind.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's so nuts.
0: It's nuts. And I think that's kind of how Paul's mind works. He saves things in some mental Rolodex until he's ready to use it.
1: Love it. Love that for him.
0: <laughs> I think as far as the way the mix sounds, it's got a bit more of a sense of urgency in the you hear the violins on your right side, you hear the cello, the low strings on your left side. It almost feels a bit faster to me. I know it's not, but it feels a little bit more driving in a way. And it contributes to the sadness and loneliness that goes throughout the song. I mean, I know Giles has said a million times like he has no intention of actually changing the narrative of any of the songs with the mixes, but it's pretty crazy how making certain instruments prominent over others actually does change how the story of a song is interpreted. Yeah. He doesn't want to spoil his dad's legacy in any way. I think he's continuing it. George Martin would have loved these new tools available and probably would have wanted to do something similar.
1: Absolutely. One of the things I really enjoyed was in the outtakes and the Sessions 2 disc, if you are... Listening on the CD version or digitally, it will be called Elmer Rigby's Speech Before Take Two. And in this track, we get to hear the session string players talking. And one of the things that Giles said at the playbacks when he played this for us was it's a good reminder that there were other people in the rooms. These are real people, you know, playing those strings and they're playing with the Beatles. And sometimes there is a misconception that they sort of took the gig and they were like, oh, these stupid kids doesn't really matter. But you can hear them in this track actually discussing like, oh, maybe we should do this or maybe we should play it like this. And then you hear George Martin come on and he has them play it two different ways, one with more vibrato and the other not so much. And he asks Paul, Paul, can you hear the difference? And you hear Paul say, "Mm, not much (laughs) or something, (laughs) but it's fun to hear them work it out sort of that way and to give the string players their moment to shine and to hear their voices And yeah, it just gives more personality, I think, to the track as
0: well. Yeah, totally. And it it fleshes out more who George Martin really was in the studio, too. You know, Mm. I mean, there's very general, like he created all of this instrumentation. And, you know, John wanted to sound like he was on a mountain in Tibet. George made it happen. But he actually took these steps to make it happen you know he auditioned string players he hired them he had all of these discussions he transcribed the music he worked out exactly like the minute differences in sound that because he was a classically trained musician could hear maybe Paul couldn't hear but probably did make a difference to the overall tone like all of these little things George Martin made these songs what they were. Totally. And
1: one thing that I thought was really interesting about the book, because you do think of George Martin, right? As this like classical guy who did all these arrangements and could write the music the Beatles could tell him about, but they didn't know how to write themselves. But George Martin really had a background to a novelty records. Mm-hmm. And so the book talks a lot about how he was kind of his element when it came to like the sound effects of like Yellow Submarine or some of the backwards tape loops or these off the wall effects, because he'd kind of done that before with these records he'd produced prior to the Beatles. I'm sure he had a great time with that because he probably didn't do too much of it after his time with the novelty records. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So it's like another side to George Martin that we don't often get to see.
0: It highlights, and some of this is probably the same with Brian, too, that you had some of these guys that were looked at as maybe the adults in the room. They were a little bit older, whatever. But in order to hang with the Beatles, you kind of had to be the right kind of weird and (laughs) stuff like this just shows that george martin was the right kind of weird to produce this stuff with total focus total seriousness and total curiosity about how to create these new sounds and with a sense of humor too
1: exactly you know with tomorrow never knows and i'm I'm getting a little bit ahead of where we are in the uh, album but the beatles played a little bit of like a Preview. I don't know if it was a fully fleshed out demo from John or what it was, but they sort of described it and and played a little bit of it for George at Brian's house when they were talking about the new album and what would be on it. And instead of being like, oh, that's crazy, like that sounds dumb or you're insane, John, his reaction was sort of like, hmm, hmm, that's interesting, John. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, you know, I didn't put him down, didn't say, like, I don't know about this, boys. It was sort of like, "Hmm, it's interesting.
0: for whatever he was actually judging, there's probably always a part of his brain that was like, how can I do it? How can I make it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I'm sure it was a fun challenge.
0: For sure. On to a song with a very different tone, I'm Only Sleeping. this is relatable content.
1: Yeah, very much so. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, Maureen Cleave, the famous journalist who captured John's bigger than Jesus quote, called John, quote unquote, probably the laziest person in England in 1966, which is a title that I frankly aspire to. I love it. So good. I love it. So yeah, Paul talks about when he would arrive at John's house in Weybridge for writing sessions. It'd be about midday and John would still be asleep. And so this song was sort of born out of that, of John waking up when Paul got there and begrudgingly getting out of bed.
0: I wonder if it was first composed with a sense of snark toward Paul, like, oh yeah, I got to write a song. I'm going to write a song about how you wake me up.
1: (laughs) I could see that. (laughs)
0: I love the song. I think that the mix itself, it's not too altered, but I think it brings out the little bits like George's backwards guitar solo, which is always a focal point of the song in the middle eight. But the presence of it under John's verses is more prominent now. So you can hear it more connecting all the way through the song, which I love. I never knew this. I'm sure a lot of other people did, but I never caught that there's a literal yawn at two minutes in this song. Like I've been listening to this song my whole life and I never heard it before I started listening to this mix.
1: That's so funny. I did know it was there, but it's definitely, it's kind of moved up in the mix, which I like because it's one of those fun little, you know, sound effect tidbits. But of course you've got to have, if you have a song about sleeping, you got to be on, right?
0: <laughs> of course.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the outtakes for this one, um, the fragment, the rehearsal fragment for this is great I believe one of the outtakes has the famous opening from the anthology, which is, you know, I'm only sleeping, take one, or whatever it is, which is always nice to hear because it brings back anthology memories. And the take five track, uh, the take five of I'm Only Sleeping, is really fun. It's more rhythmic, it's got a great groove. Yeah, it's a joy. But I mean, I'm Only Sleeping has a great groove anyway. So it's a good one on this. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Next up, we're taking a turn to Love You Too.
1: be two working title granny smith as, as as you do uh which was named after jeff emmerich's favorite variety of apple so there's a little piece of trivia you probably didn't know about jeff emmerich
0: make a great pie
1: oh no pie the um tabla player on this uh was named anil bagwat and he was a university student referred to george through the asian music circle again like really cool little supplementary player on this we have a few of those uh throughout the album
0: Yeah, I love it that he's using musicians who were born and raised in these traditions. Yeah. This is one of the songs where the mix enhances it so much. So, so much. Like you close your eyes, you feel like you're in some kind of religious ceremony. You can almost smell the incense that would be wafting through the air as you're sitting there. When you hear the opening, which really sounds to me like a musician tuning his instrument, you really feel like the, the guy is sitting right next to you.
1: Definitely. I think one of the cool things that is actually in the outtake, I believe it's the unnumbered rehearsal of Love You Two. It has George playing sitar, but he's actually singing that accompanying part that would go along with that. To hear George sort of sing that part over his own playing is really cool. It kind of shows how it was in his head existing already before they did a master take of it.
0: That's one of the best things about the box set too. You can just compare the recorded version to all of the different ways that they were experimenting with the songs.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, speaking of experimenting, we have take seven here of Love You Too, which has a very strange harmony from Paul. (laughs) Uh, It is. It's very interesting. I um, I'm very glad that did not end up on the final. Um, (laughs) It's kind of dissonant, which kind of works if you think about the tradition of the musical style. But uh, yeah, I think it was a good move to to ditch it.
0: Yeah, there's a few places like that, that remind me of the part in Get Back, where they're working and I've got a feeling. And Paul is doing something weird with the harmonies and George is just like, no, (laughs) (laughs) never made it.
1: That could have been born out of this. I could see George like, you're not going to put that harmony on my track. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
0: Like,
1: Yeah. Yeah. and I got a shout out to the take one, which kind of sounds like a demo from George, but it is very cool. It kind of has the guitar part he plays in the the what I'm, call, I'm going to call the demo, but it's take one, um, is a little bit like me, and Mr. Mustard, and I <laughs> don't know why it could just be that it's the same sort of chord he's strumming. Uh, that happens a couple of times on this box, which I'll mention when we get there. But I almost wanted to start singing along with it, you know, me, and Mr. Mustard. Too. <laughs> If you guys Love it. listen to it and feel that way, let me know because I want to know if it's just me.
0: <laughs> Next up here, there, and everywhere. Yeah.
1: damn Paul. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course, this is the one that Paul has always said. It's is very favorite of all the songs. George Martin has also said this is his favorite Paul song. And Paul's always said it's supposed to be a Beach Boys song, but you never know it. Uh, of course, he was inspired by God Only Knows from Pet Sounds. He'd gotten a preview of Pet Sounds earlier uh, than it was released and sort of was super inspired by that. And I thought it was funny in the book, he talks about how he tried to sing it like Marian Faithful, which after he says that I could totally hear Mm -hmm. him trying to mimic her a little bit. It works. It does. Yeah. I mean, she's yeah, she has such a distinctive sort of style in the way she sings that I could. Yeah, I could see him imitating that. He also uh, said that John liked this one which was a big deal. Uh, Paul said John was not one to praise. We were playing the album, and I remember him saying, I like this one. That was like enough. It, that was high praise coming from John. <laughs> <laughs> high praise.
0: That's great. That's great. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I thought it was interesting that this is the next to last song to be recorded for the album. Mm-hmm. The last song, we'll get there, as she said, she said, but this was kind of later in the process.
0: It's a great song. It's one of those where... Again, the being in the room feeling really works, especially that there's background harmony. There's kind of a slow drums. You can really picture them singing this live on stage. You can visualize John and George sharing a mic for the harmony. And this is one, too, speaking of the harmony, where the mix brings out just how perfectly well-matched their vocals were for the harmonies, which is hard to do. I mean, even if you've ever been in... A choir or a musical. Sometimes it's really hard to find people whose voices blend. and to find three men whose voices blended so well is another one of these these magical things about the Beatles. And you know, I think what they have at times is what the mamas and the papas would call Harvey. Um, They would say that there were the four of them singing and then there was kind of a fifth entity that they called Harvey, which was sort of the overtones and like the magic that gave them this perfect harmonic sound. And the backing vocals here kind of gave me a Harvey feeling.
1: Definitely. I think on this track, especially the backing vocals, really stood out to me. I don't know if they're moved up in the mix or just the way they're sort of enhanced, but they really were like the superstars. Just And it's hard, I think, to make just basic oohs and ahs sort of stand out in that way, but it really adds a lot to this particular remix.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting that it does, because you can absolutely see why the choice was made to kind of muffle them, make them a little bit background, because they are background. They're oohs and they're ahs. They're supposed to be like part of the instrumental bed, but they really make the song so much richer when you can hear them almost picked apart like they are now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of the tracks that was sort of made for the remix.
0: Yeah. I hope Paul was so pleased with this because certainly we are.
1: (laughs) Yes, we definitely are.
0: All right, next up, Yellow Submarine, which seems to be a big talking point now. Not the one I expected, but here we go. All we need this is now something that we know is more of a combo john and paul song and not just a song that paul only wrote for ringo so Though, wild yeah paul does talk about how he thought it was a, he envisioned it as a children's song um, giving it credence to the quote-unquote uncle ringo legend <laughs> <laughs> which does not stop here
1: No, it doesn't. And I mean, and that could be possible. Like what came to my mind reading about the yellow submarine Genesis was, you know, like we can work it out where Paul comes up the part of it. John comes up with this kind of like dark bridge. So John, as we hear in the demos and the session outtakes, he starts, you know, in the town where I was born, no one cared, no one cared. And he says that over and over for about two minutes. And (laughs) it's very sad.
0: Let's play that right now, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. Okay, let's do yeah.
1: it. Let's listen to it. In the place where I was born,
2: no one cared, no one cared. And the name when I was born, no one cared, no one
0: cared. No one cared.
2: And the time...
0: So different.
1: So I... incredibly different. Oh, it's so different. sad. I know. It's yeah. so emotional. Um, And then in the demo uh, part two, I think it's called a session tape on here, songwriting work tape part two, we hear Paul and John writing the chorus to submarine, including Paul interjecting as Paul is want to do a like a get down, look down, look up, (laughs) uh, whatever, you know, like little like interjections between the lines. Cool to hear the first part of it and the second part of it and how they came together. I don't know. And I don't think it says in the book sort of like the timeline of like when those were recorded. I think in my mind, it makes sense that John sort of recorded his on his own in Weybridge and then maybe Paul arrived later and they recorded the second part. But yeah, it totally changes the narrative of what we believed, which was, yeah, Paul wrote a song for Uncle Ringo to sing that could be like a fun little ditty children's sing-along. And Ringo was such a family man at that point, too. He had a couple of kids, and that sort of made sense for his voice. But who knew that it had such a dark sort of undertone from John?
0: Those lyrics, as far as I know, don't really appear anywhere else. I guess instead of it being sad, John kind of focused on the party scene?
1: I, I don't know. I was thinking the other day about Yellow Submarine, uh, which <laughs> is, is a new you thing for me. Didn't
0: expect that, did you? It's a
1: new <laughs> thing for me, guys. It is. Um, <laughs> so we know that Paul came up with the concept of the Yellow Submarine as an entity, and the chorus, etc. But I'm thinking about John writing that first verse in the town where I was born, lived a man who sailed to sea. And sort of now we know it was born out of this, like, no one, you know, no one cared, no one cared. And I'm like, okay, is the man who sailed to sea John's dad? Question mark? Oh, did it go there? But then I'm like, maybe not, because I could see Paul coming in and being like, okay, let's change no one to care to, I don't a man who sailed to sea, and then uh, this yellow submarine thing I came up with, and let's just go with that. <laughs> so maybe Paul sort of pulled him back, but I don't know. Like, that was just something I was entertaining the other day. I, I don't, like, there's no basis for it, but just thought I had.
0: And now I have this horrible, like, head cannon of John, you know, getting in touch with, the feelings about his father sort of like he did with with mother later on and paul bounding in and be like no let's make it about a yellow submarine and john being like but 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 it's sad but it's about my dad like nope yellow submarine
1: well like you know then i think about help and it's like no this is actually a cry for help oh no let's speed it up and make it happy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you know that was kind of John you know we love a depressed king
0: yeah <laughs> but I think John also enjoyed once it, it changed I, I have a feeling John got a kick out of yeah. making the the sea noises and the the echoes and all of the crazy stuff that happened
1: oh for sure for sure I mean and obviously there's so many great sound effects we have one of the sound effects tapes here on the outtakes uh, which was previously released but it's always nice to hear again Talking about the party scene. What a party. I wish I were invited. TFTI guys. Um, <laughs> we have Brian Jones clinking glasses and playing a Swanee whistle. Mal, Ever Loving Mal, who is shoveling sand. Amazing. And he's playing like a big bass drum. And then the Beatles chauffeur, Al Bicknell, came in and he started rattling some chains. And then we've got Abbey Road staffers, Terry Condon, and john Skinner who had this big metal bathtub uh, and they, they were like swirling chains around in it. So that's kind of like the water, the nautical noises you hear. And the funniest thing is all of this shit was hanging out like under the stairs of Studio 2. So you sort of like opened <laughs> up that closet. They're like, oh, what the hell's in here? And I really wish when I went to Studio 2, I would look for that closet because I didn't even notice it, but I got to go back. <laughs> oh my God. I wonder what's in there, that closet these days.
0: Seriously. And so
1: for the other party goers in this song, we have Marion Faithful, who we just talked about, uh, Patty Boyd Harrison, and we have good old Neil Aspinall, Jeff Emmerich and George Martin. So wild time.
0: Reiterating my stance that you needed to be a certain kind of weird to hang with the Beatles <laughs> and this crowd made it happen. Yeah. And this is one of the spots where, again, that really benefits from the new mix. The different sound effects and voices and seascape type things that are happening are really coming out more and you can hear how how complicated it actually was. And it's so much more than a children's song in that way.
1: Yeah. It was cool to hear at uh, the playback too because the different voices sort of were all around you and you really felt like mm-hmm. you were in the middle of a party.
0: Yeah. And you can hear just how much fun they were having. Oh, totally. So ending side one
1: of Revolver with She Said, She Said. So the inspiration for this one uh, was apparently um, an incident where they tripped with Peter Fonda at the rented house in L.A. Uh, He told a story about how when he was a kid, he accidentally shot himself. And his uh, his sort of follow up to that was, I know what it's like to be dead. And George got freaked the fuck out. And he was he literally said, you're making me feel like I've never been born. Who put all that shit in your head? So that became obviously part of the lyrics too. she said, she said. And in the uh, the outtakes, you'll hear John, when he does a little demo, she said, she said, and he'll say a couple of different lines that are in the actual song, but he'll say, who put all that crap in your head? It's like, ooh, there's a swear, kind of a swear on this Uh-oh. song, John. You can't have that. Obviously, that was changed in the final version.
0: The guitar part comes out really interesting here. It's kind of more staccato. You can hear. It's very pronounced, yeah. Yeah, you can really hear the thought that was put into it. That's kind of a theme in this album and many of the other remixes. You just hear the artistry so much more prominently. Right.
1: And as we flip the record over, a nice palate cleanser from the very dark. She said, she said, we have good day sunshine.
2: Good day sunshine. I need to laugh and when the sun is out
0: I've got something always been one of my favorite Paul songs and that's saying something it's such a great song
1: so good and I love to I love to throw out this fact because it was inspired by one of my other favorite bands Love and Spoonful and Daydream which I don't really hear Daydream other than like the bright sunny sort of subject matter. Uh, but then again, Daydream was inspired by Baby Love by the Supremes, which can't really hear that either.
0: And I don't hear God Only Knows in here, there, and everywhere, but apparently it was inspired by, so. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, the inspiration sort of takes many forms, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's good when you're inspired by something and it's totally different because otherwise you're inspired by something and you get sued.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, sorry, George, what? <clears throat> George
0: and John. George is not the only Heedle, who did that?
1: When did John get sued?
0: Here Comes Old Flat Top was from Chuck Berry's song. Oh, yeah,
1: Chuck Berry, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, Chuck Berry should have, well, Chuck Berry also tried to sue the Beach Boys, too, which, I mean, kind of. (laughs) But, of course, everybody's nicking everything from everybody else.
0: Yeah, this is just a little bit too close at this point.
1: There's also a great quote in the book from my numero uno uh, male singer, songwriter, fave, rave of all time, John Sebastian, um, who says um, that the Beatles, to speak to your point, Erica, what you just said is, you know, the Beatles were so good at ripping you off. You had no idea until (laughs) until like years later, because he didn't realize this was inspired by Daydream until Paul, I think, told him in the 80s. And he's like, oh, I I wrote that because of Daydream. And John was like, what? (laughs) I had no idea.
0: That's amazing. So good. But then again, it's the same thing with Paul. Like, well, well, I mean, maybe. Maybe he got it from there. You know, maybe Blackbird was written about the civil rights movement. Maybe it was written based on a, a Bach tune he and George used to play. Maybe. Maybe.
1: Maybe. Maybe it's, maybe it's a confluence, which is another yeah. on one of Paul's big words.
0: <laughs> but um, however the song came about, it's fantastic. It's one of the songs that does so well with creating a mood and a tone that directly relates to the lyrics. And in this mix, they do something, which actually I think Giles did this in Two of Us on Let It Be, in that the piano kind of starts small and it starts on the right a little bit back. And then it builds up into full stereo. And by the time the vocals come in, the song is kind of bursting like the sun. And the piano in there, you know, you you kind of hear the beat of taking a walk in the sunshine. You can hear the feet slapping on the ground with the piano. And he really evokes a feeling with the way that he's playing. He's kind of banging down on the keys.
1: And I thought George Martin's piano solo really shone in this. Giles did his dad proud.
0: Yes, he did. It sounded a lot like the piano to me in, in Rocky Raccoon. It probably was actually the same. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a robot billion, you know? Yeah.
1: It's a little that old timey piano sound. Which I'm
0: sure Paul loved, you know? Yes. <laughs> and Paul's dad also loved when he heard it.
1: Yes, Jim McCartney, big fan.
0: Yeah. Now, I don't know if you heard this, but something has sounded very abrupt at the very end of the song. And it's it, it's in all the originals too, but it's just brighter here. Yes. I noticed
1: that you had called this out and I went and listened to it. I listened to it in the 2009 mixes too, and you're right. It's there, but it's a little bit faded, but for some reason it is brought out. So I don't know. Um, If you guys go and listen, it's about 158 right in the song. And it sounds like, I don't know, a tape gets cut off or something. And it's in the stereo mix. It's in the right channel.
0: Yeah, it's weird. Giles has said over and over they never did anything to the originals like they didn't cut things out that maybe were mistakes they didn't do anything like that so whatever was there was there that was definitely there before I can't tell if it was an error like a tape error or if they abruptly pulled back all of the other things that surrounded the harmonies to kind of emphasize the harmony in the original mix but it just really stuck out to me is what is this?
1: Yeah, and it's one of those things where after I sort of listened for it, I've heard it, you know, we've heard it all our lives in these, but you don't necessarily ever pay attention to them. But yeah, I'm sure, like, his intention was to preserve it and its lovely little quirkiness for being there. When I went looking for it, I could hear it.
0: And now we come to your favorite song of all time, I think. my favorite Beatles song. Yay.
1: Yay. Yes, it is. According to me and the song decider thing that we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast. Yeah. It's always good
0: when technology reaffirms your opinions.
1: Exactly. What I've always believed about myself, the song is And Your Bird Can Sing. original title to this uh very john again we love a depressed king is you don't get me makes sense uh, yeah but he, he needed the song he called it another horror which i hate for him because i love this song i love it i love everything about it i love the jangly birds like guitars i love the lyrics i love everything so john just could not recognize his own genius on this one
0: John is just categorically wrong here. It's not another horror. It's great. It's joyous. You've got those harmonies. You've got great contributions from everybody. And, you know, one of my favorite things from the outtakes was the outtake that we all heard in the anthology. But it's Paul and John probably stoned out of their minds during the take of this song and just giggling. It was so fun. Just making stuff up. Yeah, in the book, Paul
1: Yeah, Paul talks about exactly that, how much fun they were having just making it up, kind of like just playing off each other, all that. And I know that there are some people, I've heard some grousing about the giggling track being included in this, but I think that is bull, you know what? Because <laughs> ridiculous. I think this is so much fun. That's always been one of my favorite cuts from the anthology too was the giggling track. So it's nice to have, I think this is extended from what was on the anthology. Oh, it's much longer,
0: yeah. It's not just exactly the same thing. And this is exactly what I,
1: what I want from a box set like this. So I'm happy it's here.
0: Yeah, because otherwise you remember it and you have to go hunting for it. I want to hear. I want to hear because I'm going to think about it because I know it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, that take, you know? I so love yeah. it. I love Lots it. Lots of fun. And I feel like, you know, maybe it was the drugs talking, but John at some point called it another horror. He hated it, but he didn't hate it always all the time because he was clearly having a wonderful time whether chemically enhanced or not that day when he was playing it with Paul.
1: Yes. I did like, um, again, on the outtakes, a second version, which is take five. The beginning, like I said about George in the Love You Too demo, the beginning gives major ballad of John and Yoko in the Mm. acoustic guitar. It's very strange. It's a very uh, like a foreshadowing moment.
0: It's fun to be able to hear certain things already brewing years before.
1: For sure, because you don't get that from the finished version at all. Mm-hmm. But if you go and listen to it on the optics, you might hear it.
0: Alright, next up. For No One, or as originally titled, Why Did It Die? why did they changed that? That's so dramatic. Yeah.
2: <laughs> your day breaks Your mind aches You find that all her words of kindness linger on When she no longer needs you She wakes up she makes up She takes her time And doesn't feel She has to hurry She no longer needs you And in her
0: eyes You see nothing no Another great song for Paul Not a love song, kind of a love song But a more mature subject matter about love I mean, I wouldn't want to be Jane Asher at this point It was written on a skiing holiday That he went away with Jane Asher in March of 66 Um I don't want that song written about me, dedicated to me, but cool.
1: Uh, Yeah, he likens it to a a later song, Another Day. And he says that it could be the same girl, you know, kind of two sides of the coin on this one. Something very interesting about this track is that John and George aren't on it. It's just just Paul and Ringo. And we have Alan Sybil on French horn. So Alan Sybil, recruited, of course, by George Martin was the principal French horn player in the new Philharmonia Orchestra. He would go on to join the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and he stayed there for 22 years, so it's pretty, pretty impressive. In the book, it talks about how he was paid 52 pounds, which is about 1,000 pounds today, to do his little horn solo. And then he would rejoin the Beatles for Sgt. Pepper, and he was in the orchestra for A Day in the Life. So he came back.
0: <laughs> and he came back despite the fact that the uh, the arrangement was surprisingly difficult. When he saw the uh, transcription, he was like, are you sure this is right? That's really high for the French horn. He's like, yeah, they're like, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> he really got challenged with this and he did an excellent job.
1: Absolutely. And side note, shout out to our friend Caitlin Larkin, because she's been talking about, uh, she talked about on her radio show on Beatles Sirius XM channel last week about the old help game. I think it was a help. I think, I think it was called help. The help game on Beatles.com, the Beatles.com. I don't know if you ever played that, Erica.
0: No, what is this?
1: Oh my God. Okay. It was a virtual game where you sort of joined a chat room first and you had your little Beatles avatar and it was designed like the Cavern Club. So you go in there and then you join up with like three other people. So if you were playing Paul, you'd find your George, Ringo and John and you would then enter the game, all four of you. And so you had to play this game where you completed little like missions around Liverpool and London And you had to collect things. So I I forget what all the things were, but one of them was the French horn. So when you found the French horn in the game, it would play this lick from for no one. And every time I hear this song, I'm like, I, I would give anything to play this game one more time. And I was talking to Caitlin about it a little bit. We were just reminiscing so hardcore. And I'm sure there was maybe some point where we were both in this game together. I would love to think that we played together at some point before we knew each other.
0: Wow. I wonder if there are like at least some bits and pieces on the Wayback Machine. There is a YouTube
1: video where you can watch the game. So drop that in our show notes. It's so nostalgic, but it was so much fun. I would would love, I would love, love, love if Apple would bring that back. It was so much fun. This is probably like 10 or 12 years ago, maybe longer. Yeah, I think it was around the time the Beatles one came out, so that was almost twenty years ago. So yeah. maybe that it's that old, but it was so much fun. But anyway, so that's all—all all that to say that when I hear the French horn solo and for no one, that's where my mind goes back to that game.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> we want to play that game? We should post the video of what the game looked like. We
1: will. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely link it in the show notes, and we'll we'll share it on our socials.
0: Um, but yeah, the song. I think again, the the orchestration combined with the mix emphasized kind of the plotting nature of the storyline how kind of depressing it is to be in this situation Mm. and bringing out the bass notes and the piano and the drums coming out really for the first time hello hello yeah
1: when I saw Giles he mentioned he'd never realized there are drums on this track and until he said that I sort of never gave it a thought but I'm like yeah I didn't either so it's nice to hear them and nice to hear the percussion really shine on this.
0: Yeah, it makes a huge difference in setting the tone and the mood.
1: Yeah, it's good balance, really. Next is Dr. Robert.
2: Take a drink from the special cup.
0: This song is so funny to me. It's just like, it's so like, is there more of a 1966 song?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Paul has said that John and I thought it was a funny idea. A fantasy doctor who would fix you up by giving you drugs is a parody on that idea. It's just a piss take.
0: <laughs> oh, that's not true.
1: I mean, I don't, maybe they're just sort of tossing stuff off, but I, I don't know. I like Dr. Robert. I know it's not a lot of people's favorite, but, but I sort of like the chorale breakdown with the organ and how it kind of contrasts to the rock and roll verses.
0: Oh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of yeah. fun. It, it kind of gives me, like, the Last Train to Clarkville sort of vibes.
1: I've never thought about that. I'll have to listen to them together.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe it's more now, too, because George's guitar is much more of a highlight. They balance differently this time.
1: Yeah, and it takes seven in the outtakes the tempo kind of changes in the corral and it sort of keeps it moving. It's like more of a groove. Mm. Um, And there's a bit of a beat to it too, which is really fun. Uh, It's cool to like just hear a little bit of a different take on it. And there's only one take of Dr. Robert on the outtakes discs, but it's a good one.
0: Now we're back to George, another George song I want to tell you. (laughs) that I would use for this is unsettling and (laughs) I, I noticed this and I said this on our our episode where we talked about the listening party but there's something about the way they brought out the bass and the dissonant guitar it like it makes me feel like like I know it was actually Eleanor Rigby that was inspired somewhat by Psycho but this is the song to me that feels like it was inspired by Psycho
1: Ugh, that's so funny. Yeah, I mean, I have always loved this song. I think the subject matter is so apt. I've definitely been in relationships, situations that I felt like just the song perfectly encapsulated all those feelings. Mm-hmm. Um you know, George said it really well. He said, I I want to tell you about the avalanche of thoughts that are hard to write down or say or transmit. And famously later, he decided he wanted to revise the line, it's only me, it's not my mind to it's not me, it's just my mind. Reasoning the mind is the thing that hops about telling us to do this or that when what we need to do is to lose or forget the mind, which is very George to revise that.
0: Like his um, cartoon avatar in Yellow Submarine said constantly, it's all in the mind.
1: It's all in the mind. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But I, yeah, no, again, it's, you know, such a strong George album. I think this one, you know, was a song where, you know, John and Paul specifically went to George and they said, you know, what do you have? Or you try to finish this album. And he had this track on the outtakes. There's some studio chatter for one of the I Want to Tell You tracks where they're trying to figure out a title and if you guys remember when we talked about love you too um it was codenamed granny smith while they were working on it and so i believe it's jeff emmerich comes over the studio microphone and says uh what's this one called and george is like i don't know and john's like granny smith take friggin two <laughs> or something <laughs> and uh ringo is the one who says oh i think tell you is a nice title ringo always the pro at coming up with titles
0: he should be recognized for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then I think John says something like, George, you're, you know, you're so bad at coming up titles, other than don't bother me. That was the only one you came up with or something. <laughs> in in fewer words, but yeah. Love a bit of <laughs> love a bit of studio chatter.
0: Alright, this is a totally different mood. The ode to drugs that Paul <laughs> wrote.
1: <laughs> yes, John says acid, Paul says pot. So take your pick here
2: I was alone I took a ride I didn't know what I would find there another road where maybe I could see another
1: obviously very soul slash Motown influenced. And this would have probably been one of the ones they would have cut at stacks, And it would have been amazing with the Memphis horns. Obviously the horn section in this is incredible, but this would have been even better to hear at stacks.
0: Did you notice that there was the unnumbered mix in the outtakes though? There were no horns in it, but it was very like guitar forward. Oh yeah, it was amazing. I loved it. (laughs) I actually liked it a lot more than what they did.
1: Yeah, that is one of the superstar tracks, I think, of this whole set is that unnumbered mix. That one was released prior to the box release as well. Uh, and it's been so incredible to listen to that. And then we've got also in the outtakes, the first version, which is take five of the first version, which is I felt very church forward, <laughs> uh, mm. like heavy organ. There's like a choir, like backing vocal. I'm glad they kind of found a nice hybrid and they replaced sort of the organ part with the horns eventually, you know, in the second version, take eight, of course, then they add the horns, but it's sort of the song building as these boxes kind of show off how they built the tracks with the different parts. But I think the nice middle ground with that sort of grungy guitar was awesome. I loved it.
0: Yeah, it's a really great version.
1: And I sort of thought also the guitar in the second version, the Unnumbered Mix, uh, was very much getting better. Like the sort of like the ups, up strum or strumming mm-hmm. up, whatever. I'm not, again, not a guitar player. But like that sort of rhythm, it was super getting better.
0: Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I heard Shades of Revolution in it, too. There was a really interesting remix effect around 33 seconds and, and elsewhere as it repeats the higher part of the drums comes in on the right ear and the lower part then switches to the left ear. I'm wondering if things like this are how these songs that we've heard our whole lives actually do feel new in that you can't listen to this as background noise. Like you can't put it on and do your laundry and just totally forget about it because something happens that changes that kind of brings you back to being present with the music, like something that you hadn't heard before, or something that pings your ear, a different ear, or pings it in a different place and, you know, kind of makes you pay attention again. And I think that part of the amazing feat that that Giles has undertaken with this, part of the success has been that they have found a way to make songs that we have heard our whole lives sound new and make us pay attention. And one of those kind of things are the kind of things that really make me pay attention.
1: Yeah. And particularly in this set, uh, we're not getting, you know, the Blu-ray disc, which we usually would. And we got and Let It Be and past releases. So this is kind of a way to really make it more of an immersive experience. Erica, you talked about how in Taxman, how it sounds like George is sort of standing behind you and like that spatial relationship of all the instruments. And I think even in the stereo mix, you get that, which is really cool for those of us who don't have the capability to listen to a Dolby Atmos mix.
0: Yeah. I mean, my observations are not from the listening party. They're just listening from listening to it in normal over the year headphones.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Which is great because I wasn't even sure that they could accomplish making it sound similar to the Atmos mix in the stereo version for all of us who don't have that setup. Right.
1: Totally. And now we wrap up the album with Tomorrow Never Knows.
0: The last song in the album, but the first song that was to be recorded for the album. This was interesting in that it felt so immersive, but at my listening party, at least, somebody had asked a question of Giles about this song, and he had said that this was the one that they had to touch the least. Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I could see that because it has so much going on. <laughs> you know, I was very taken in the outtakes, has take one, and already the Leslie speaker effect is there. We talked about how John's voice for the first time was being fed into a Leslie rotating speaker. That's how we get that sort of sound where it sounds like his voice is going around and around. And that Tibetan monk on a hill, the Dalai Lama high on a hill, that sound that John (laughs) really wanted and how Jeff Emmerich sort of created that for John to have that sort of sound he wanted. and. The title for "Tomorrow Never Knows" was originally "Mark One," which is what it's marked on the tape boxes. You'll see in the book. It was a beautiful, beautiful array of tape boxes in the book, but they eventually changed it to another one of Ringo's malapropisms, just like "A Hard Day's Night," and Ringo's lovely eight—I think—eight arms to hold you was one of his and. Mm-hmm. Obviously it was heavily influenced by Timothy Leary and John picking up the book, The Psychedelic Experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Lines are taken exactly from it. And again, I still love that when John approached George Martin with the song, George wasn't like, No, <laughs> sounds dumb. <laughs> it was sort of like, mm, yes, let's we'll figure it out. Interesting. Maybe interesting, John. Yeah. <laughs> I love that guy. Yeah, I know. And Paul was talking to Enemy, and this is in the Road to Revolver essay, but I just love this quote. He said We did it because I, for one, am sick of doing sounds that people can claim to have heard before. We played it to The Stones and The Who, and they visibly sat up and were interested. We also played it to Scylla, who just laughed. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall when they played Tomorrow Never Knows for Scylla Black.
0: (laughs) And she just laughed at it. It's great. I know.
1: That is too funny. I love her.
0: So now we come to the last two songs that I think we're going to highlight today the paperback writer and rain that was released as a single but that is included as part of the revolver box set in its own as we talked about before very adorable ep that's a remake of the original design
1: yes and we have both the stereo and the mono mixes in these sets and they're fabulous so let's start with paperback writer
2: paperback
1: So, of course, this was the lead-off non-album single. Um, It was the first Beatles single to not go number one right away in its first week of release, although it did the next week and knocked Frank Sinatra off the charts. It was inspired, yeah, it was inspired by Paul's Aunt Millie, and she asked him why he always had to write love songs. Why didn't he write songs about other things, like just life things? And so he got the idea for this sort of as he was going out to John's house in Weybridge, and by the time he was there, it was sort of finished, and then John helped him polish it.
0: That's so interesting, because we were just talking about how there's only one really traditional love song in the whole album. I wonder if that comment from his Auntie Millie kind of stuck in his mind for a while, and he was doing what he could to branch out.
1: I could see that. I could see that being a little bit of a challenge for Paul. Like, yeah. oh, I'll, let me see if I can not write a bunch of like traditional love songs.
0: This was probably the first time one of Paul's story songs made it onto an album, and... That's one of the tactics that he used in songwriting to this day, really.
1: Yeah, he does. He creates these little vignettes. I would say that for no one is probably a vignette. Lots of little, little stories, lots of little characters in these. And one of the things that really stands out to me, it's always stood out to me in paperback writer is Paul's bass playing. Obviously Mm -hmm. Paul's fucking amazing bass player. He was really one of the first rock and roll bassists to make it sort of a melodic instrument. And Something that is really prominent in these remixes, going back to even Sgt. Pepper in 2017, is that the bass and the drums are really superstars, and people make jokes, and they say, oh, I wonder why. Who has to improve (laughs) these recordings? It's Paul and Ringo. (laughs) However, in the book, in Kevin Hallett's essay, I found it really interesting because he talks about how the Beatles always wanted more bass on their tracks, and maybe it was Paul leading the charge, but... It was kind of a a group thing. They just wanted them to sound heavier. But they were bound by quote-unquote practical reasons from the AMI engineers because they were afraid that on just a regular record player in any old home that the stylus would skip if the bass was too heavy. So, And they called these kangaroo records. So, uh, yeah, these kangaroo records. So um, if it's true, it kind of makes sense why now, because of the technology, they could, uh, you know, enhance the bass and drums. But obviously, after 66 into the 70s, 80s, whenever vinyl was the mainstream media of choice, records got heavier, but because they figured it out. So after 66, the Beatles did kind of figure out how to make a heavier bass sound. Thanks to technology called ATOC, trying to make this not very technological, I stole this right from Kevin Hallett's essay, um, which stands for Automatic Transient Overload Control. And so that sort of made the grooves a little bit wider and a little it gave them a little bit more of a burst, so they wouldn't um, the stylus wouldn't skip as much. So that was why you have a little bit of a heavier bass going into the Beatles later recordings. But maybe it didn't accomplish exactly everything they wanted. So it makes sense why uh, there's a heavier rhythm sound on these.
0: And I will say I noticed just how heavy these vinyl records were, like, in weight. Oh, yeah. like They're very heavy, so they can withstand the power of the bass now.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. You've got your 180 grams now, which is mm-hmm. such a nice hefty little record. And, you know, we all love a 140, but damn, when you've got a 180 in your hands, you're like, oh. This is some substantial vinyl right here.
0: The box set itself like is a joy in so many ways and also the way it feels.
1: Yeah, totally. It's got some heft to it. And we're finishing up with the B-side of that single which is another amazing song. So let's talk about rain. <laughs>
0: This is one of Ringo's best songs, top songs, one of the songs that were always cited as. Ringo is really one of the greatest drummers in the world, and here's an example. And we're really hearing it here. I mean, we're
1: hearing it here in the outtakes, uh, take five actual speed. You think Ringo kicked ass on the master track that we all know and love? Um, it's even faster and more kick ass. Imagine how fast Ringo is playing those drums on the actual speed.
0: That was um, a crazy recording.
1: I fucking loved it. That's another it superstar amazing. standout for me yeah. on this box and it is such a groove it's such it's moving and shaking and it is yeah it just feels fast paul is keeping up with ringo so well in the bass that rhythm section is absolutely locked um and then to hear take 5 the slow down master after it it's cool because you can hear the count off which shows you exactly how much they slowed it down because it's like, one, two. Like it's somebody <laughs> yeah. who's audibly slowed down talking. Uh, it might be Paul, I'm not sure. But it's so cool to hear those two things back to back from this track that is so killer just by itself. But to hear that process is unreal.
0: And to think about all of the little manipulations that we don't even think about, how yeah. you know things are in different keys. Their voices are... Manipulated just by going a little faster or a little slower in certain in certain songs and just so many minute details to bring these songs together.
1: In the book, Kevin Hallett talks about the reverse tape uh, that we hear at the end. And I've never given much thought to like what actually John's saying, what's being reversed there. But if you're curious, like I was, it's the part of rain where John says sip their lemonade when the sun shines, when the sun shines, rain, rain. If the rain comes, they run and hide their heads. So that's what's reversed there. Oh, okay. Just a (laughs) fact.
0: Nothing about Paul being dead. Amazing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, this was before Paul died,
0: allegedly. Right. So (laughs) I think
1: (laughs) Paul truthers will come for me.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the whole timeline. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the box set. There's a lot more to explore. There's so many other outtakes that we didn't mention. You know, there's a lot more to the book that accompanies it that we didn't mention. It's certainly worth the purchase, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I am a little bit speechless, just again, because I just never thought we'd get a revolver box. So uh, to get to spend time with this and to to talk about it on the pod with you, Erica, and I can't wait to hear about what everybody else thinks about it. um, Just fucking blast. And it's so, so cool. The remixes sound so good. And the outtakes are fantastic. So all the way around, this is a home run for me.
0: Yeah, we're getting the Beatles as, like you said, we never thought we would get. We get... The Beatles at what I think is this amazing transitional period where they're so cohesive and now we're getting the Giles Martin treatment because of these advances in technology and so we're hearing it sharper and cleaner and more, you know, as they played it than ever before. So if you guys pick
1: it up, please let us know what you think. We'll be posting and, um, you know, tweet at us, reply to our posts or email us or whatever. We want to hear your thoughts on the box and what your favorite tracks are, what kind of the outtakes you like, yeah, you know, all of all the good stuff.
0: Yeah, we want to keep talking about this. Yes, it is
1: revolver <laughs> season, guys. This is not just a day. It's a whole season.
0: It is. It is. <laughs>
1: And thank you guys so much for listening to Because the Beatles. Uh, as always, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. And please give us a rating and review so other Beatle Maniacs can find us.
0: And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always email us your thoughts, especially about Revolver, to bcthebeatles at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye.